you can open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Continuing our series for the book of 1 Samuel, last week we launched into chapter one and uh, covered the prayer of Hannah and her song in chapter two. And this morning we're going to look at the rest of chapter two, Lord willing. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to come and to worship and gather together as the body of Christ. And, and God, now we continue in our worship of you as your word is preached. And we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would guide us and lead us to understanding of your word and application of that to our lives. God, may we focus on you this morning. Um, may you be honored and glorified in all that we do. Be with our kids too as they're off to the children's church and the nursery that you would be teaching them also your word that they would apply to their life and, and look to grow and become more like Jesus. We thank you so much, God, that we can be here and be in your word and be together as the family. Bless our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin with a question. Are you acceptable to God? Are you acceptable to God. This may come across as quite an offensive question maybe to you this morning. I mean, we live in a modern culture now and that question presumes that there is a God and that he even cares. It presumes that he cares about your behavior. It presumes that God has standards. We get nervous when this question is asked. It's a a question of moral standards that, that we could know and that we could then obey these standards. And if there is a standard, then it begs a question that, that some are acceptable and others are not. And if we make that statement, then we have committed the greatest sin of our modern time. For us to label someone as unacceptable, we have judged them. Isn't that the greatest sin right now in our culture? It's the biggest sin I see, to judge someone else. You know, it's on par for many people and the same as murder, that we dare judge someone, that we dare talk about a standard that isn't set by the culture that would then judge someone. I want to quote from one of the greatest philosophers of our age, Katy Perry. <laughs> she says, there is no fear now. Let go and just be free. I will love you unconditionally. Come just as you are to me. Don't need apologies. Know that you are worthy. Acceptance is the key to be, to be truly free. Will you do the same for me? should be thankful I didn't sing it for you. <laughs> this world takes that theology and it's, it's theology, a view of God and, and how it plays out, and they, and they compare that, that thinking to God. God is love. Love is unconditional. So God has to accept me unconditionally. Acceptance. That is the, the key to be truly free in this world. You, you have to accept. You have to swallow whatever the world throws at you, and you have to accept it. 
You have to do this to be truly free. This is the message from our world. This is the only way. And when you combat this, when you fight this, you're judging, you're condemning. We live in an age that tolerance and acceptance is the main objective. It's the only way that you can live. So to even suggest that God doesn't accept us, well, that's just mean. That's intolerant. It's now called evil. And the world screams at us. Yes, God accepts us. And the sooner you believe that, the sooner you can accept yourself. Whatever you call yourself, male, female, straight or not, tolerance is the new standard. No one can be left out. No one can have hurt feelings. No one, no one makes the rules. The rules are made by themselves. This is what the, the world thinks will make the, the world a better place. But is this what God thinks? Is he ever consulted? And we come to the book of 1 Samuel this morning and we enter the second half of chapter two and we enter a very dark scene. There's a crisis in Israel. The nation was in deep sin. God had set up a system to deal with their sin. They could bring their sacrifice to the priest. But what would happen if the priests themselves were evil? Now, there are very many dark pictures in the history of Israel in the time of the judges, pictures of idolatry, pictures of lust, pictures of treachery and, and bloodshed, but there is no more awful picture than that of chapter two of 1 Samuel of the priests and the family at Shiloh. You know, Hannah's song that we ended with last week in the first part of chapter two outlines the wicked, the, the proud, the arrogant enemies of God. And as you read it, you would initially think that it was some of the worst people who would, who would be opposed to God. But as we continue into chapter two, it actually is the priests of God serving in Shiloh. The salt had lost its flavor. And you, as you begin, as you read this, if you had an opportunity this week to read all of chapter two, you realize the only thing that was great about Eli's sons was their sin. So this morning, we're gonna walk through the second half, and I have an outline. I wanna give you some handles to, to follow with me as I walk through the text. The first point is the wicked sons. Second is the indulgent father. Third is the judgment of the family. And fourth, the rise of Samuel. The wicked sons, the indulgent father, the judgment of the family, and the rise of Samuel. Follow with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that, the, that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into a pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. 
Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will be not be an old man in your house. And then in distress you will look with envious eye and all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die in the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is a sobering passage. First point this morning is the wicked sons. As we start in verse 12, this is the scene. 
worship is a farce at Charlotte. A worshiper is cooking his portion of a peace offering for the post-sacrificial meal that he and his family will enjoy together. And, he's, and as this man walks by, the ever-present priest servant with his infamous three-pronged barbecue fork, he plunges it into the worshiper's pot or kettle or cauldron. And whatever the fork brings up, he takes away then to the priest's quarters. Now, the priest was already allowed the breast and the right leg of this animal as as Leviticus tells us, but this Shiloh forked man was sent out into the crowd to stab for more. But it gets worse. Before the fat is burned in honor of the Lord, the priest lackey appears demanding fresh, uncooked meat and cuts from the worshiper. And if the worshiper would remind them, the lackey, that the the priest's share was after the burning of the fat on the altar, which was for the Lord, the lackey then would threaten them to seize their offering by force. This is the sheer contempt that Eli's two sons have for the Lord and to the offering that was due him. Friends, this is bad. And this is written here to shock us into understanding how bad it is in Israel. You know, our greatest security against sin is being shocked by it. Now, if we continue to read, and I did earlier, and in verse 22, Eli was very old and he kept hearing that his sons were doing this and how they would lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent meeting. These two men had turned the sacred place into a brothel. These two evil men were having sex with women who tended the worship center. These two were truly wicked Men. The Hebrew in verse 12 says that they were men of Belial. The word Belial is associated with death, wickedness, and rebellion. It later became the name of the prince of the evil one. It's strong language. They're sons of the devil. Worthless men, as our text says. And the author aptly says, they did not know the Lord. Because to know the Lord means to love him. It means to seek to obey him. But these two men and their, their lackeys didn't know the Lord. And they're marked by two great sins. Greed and lust. And they're so shameless in their sins that they made no effort to even hide it. It was done openly. It's a, a buffet in a brothel. You think of the impact that this would have on the people. What kind of conception of God would men and women have when the very men who represent God act this way? Lead. They would uh, have greed and, and lust and laziness. Laziness because they didn't even do it themselves. They would send out their lackeys to do this. And theft and lies and the list goes on. How could the people understand a God of justice and mercy and truth when those that represented him acted this way? How would they teach men and women a real reverence for God? 
encourage them to be obedient to God when they would defy him. Men and women, by their very nature, are evil in their thoughts and actions. Men and women are already, already by their nature, to play loose with their conscience. And so when the men of God are seen openly and unashamedly robbing man and robbing God, what should they think? It would seem normal than to think that men who live corrupt lives as the head of the religion who are shameless in their sins would then have a lowering effect on the moral life of the community that follows them. And down and down goes the standard of living. Group after group is infected. And, and this, this sinful lifestyle spreads like dry rot in a, in a building and soon the entire fabric of society is poisoned. Do you see the horror of what's happening here. Verse 17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They showed contempt for the holiness of God. This tent, this tabernacle, was where God's people would enter into God's presence. And they showed contempt of him. And God does not think lightly of men and women who make a mockery of his holiness. So what do we do with this section here? Well, we pay attention to these verses. We pay attention to these two men because they're a warning to us. If you desire to continue in your sinful lifestyle and think that things will just be fine and you're gonna live it up any way you want and maybe when you're old you'll settle down and follow God, you need to be warned. And I pray that this passage will haunt you to turn away from your sinful lifestyle. The section, though, doesn't end with the sins of these two sons. No, at verse 18 it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. As you caught as I read this and as you read it at home this week these little nuggets are throughout the text to let us know that God is still working he hasn't checked out you know these are like text messages you get when you know someone's traveling like I'm, I'm okay things are going fine you know every every weekday usually when I leave the office I text my wife I'm coming home just so she knows and, and I see that in the text here is we're we're coming along and distraught over what's happening and God throws these in. He's telling us that he's in the process to rectify this bad situation. He's going to bring godly leadership to the nation and growth seldom makes much noise but God is giving the increase. And we're gonna see more about Samuel here this morning in our last point. We've seen the wicked sons. Let's move to the second point. The indulgent father. Eli was an old man at this time. Best guess is that he was 78 years old when Samuel was born. So by now he's well into his 80s. Some issues with Eli as you read these verses. First, he seems to be completely unaware of the conduct of his sons personally, but he hears it from others. There's 
a disconnect of Eli, and it's concerning. Since he was the priest in charge. And what he hears of his sons wasn't some minor issues with their lifestyle, but they're living a, a debauched life. The second thing that I notice, and, and it's not in our passage in particular, but Eli was not a small man. It tells us in chapter 4, verse 18, the day he died, that he was old and heavy. So I take from that that he fattened himself on the fat of the sacrifice. It would seem that he was enjoying the spoils of his son stealing at Shiloh. They would take more than they should, and Eli would then enjoy it along with them. Eli had become fat, heavy, as the text says, and it's the same Hebrew word for glory or honor. And Eli was glorifying himself by fatting himself on the Lord's portion instead of glorifying God by giving back to his Lord. Eli was not a good judge of character. It may seem easy to sympathize with him. I mean, if you're here this morning and you're a parent, you know of the frustration with children who refuse to listen who refused to obey. But the fact remains, as we see in the text, God will hold Eli accountable for his actions. You know, Eli has a chance to make some of this right, but what does he do? He, he waffles. He is weak in his rebuke. Verse 23, why do you do such things? You know, he speaks against them, but it's lame. It's ineffectual. He doesn't act. Why doesn't his rebuke ask them, demand, really, repentance? You know, he could have stopped them. I'm sure this wasn't the first time that he heard about their exploits, but he doesn't. You know, he could have had them removed. In all honesty, he could not have prevented his sons from practicing immorality, but he could have prevented them from doing it as priests. He could have been severe with their position. They had lost their opportunity to be priests because they refused to be holy. And simply put, Eli honored his sons more than he honored God. Eli is willing to tolerate sin, to allow God's honor to take a back seat to prefer, to prefer my boys over my God. And for that, he would be judged. For Eli, blood was indeed thicker than piety to his Lord. Eli chose family over faithfulness. He protected the person instead of protecting the holiness of God. He couldn't bring himself to be harsh with his own sons. He couldn't bear the thought that they would be disgraced or degraded. And Eli, by his refusal to deal with the sins of his sons, makes a mockery of God and his holiness for his people. And as parents, we, we must take notice here. We cannot be silent at the face of evil, even when it comes from our own children. How differently did Moses deal with the sin of the people when he came down from the mount and found the people worshiping the golden calf? 
we talked about that this morning in, in our core seminar class in worship. Here's the response of Moses in Exodus 32, 19 and 20. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. You think God is serious about his holiness? Do we think this is too severe of a punishment? God was dishonored. And the people loved their sin more than they loved God. You know, it's, a, it's shocking when you read this passage in Exodus that, that people would so quickly replace God with a golden calf and then worship it. And the sins of Eli's sons was equally outrageous. And yet Eli is not moved to anger and indignation and he took no steps to remove this sinful practice from the tabernacle. These wicked men made the, the service of God as common as digging a ditch. They had no reverence for God. There was no sacredness. They, they treated the priesthood as a, just a, a mere trade, a, a way to make living, a, a way to put food on the table. That's all it is. It was a way to just get a paycheck, nothing more. And how sad this is. And unfortunately, it still happens today in pulpits and churches across the world. Men coming week in and week out thinking that pastoring a church is just a job. Shame on them. This isn't a job. It's a calling. It's a holy, reverent calling that's clear to the one that's called and to the church that calls them. And if a man doesn't have this clear calling in his head and his heart, then it's best for him to resign and do it as quickly as possible. God will not have his holy people be led by someone that is not willing to sacrifice their own pride and will make a mockery of his holiness. And for those of us this morning that are leaders, there's an important lesson for us to learn. We can get into deep sin by thinking our first responsibility is to man instead of God. How easy it is to practice unholy compassion that never wants to offend the creation and yet mocks the creator. We don't seek God's honor when we're only worried about sparing human feelings. One commentator said, how easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone that equates niceness with love and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. God's holiness will not be mocked. He will deal justly with sin. 
We see at the end of the section, verse 25, he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. These are chilling words. His point is that the sins against other people can be forgiven through the atoning blood of the Lord's sacrifice. But what can be done for the sins that show utter contempt for the sacrifice themselves? They're sins against God's way of salvation. It's the same for those today that despise the gospel. This left Eli's sons no means of forgiveness. You may see the same in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, 26 and 27. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that consumed the adversaries. And then verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? The author of Hebrews is is warning those that just attend church, but they're not saved. They've heard the truth, but they've turned away. Not only that, they have spurned the gospel. They mock the gospel. They mock what Christ did for them, the saving grace, by continuing to deny its saving work, questioning the validity of it. They look for salvation in anything other than Christ alone. And there is no salvation outside of Jesus. You cannot be saved without Christ. And in 1 Samuel, what does God do? But hands Eli's sons over to the rebellion. Their continued hardening brought God's hardening. Humans can become so firm in their rebellion that God then confirms it too. can be deaf and unmoved by any warnings of judgment and pleas for repentance. And listen to my non-Christian friends that are here this morning. If you're going to listen to anything this morning, listen to this. Every single one of us seated here this morning was born as a rebel against God. We naturally choose our own way. We we want what we want and we thumb our nose at God. And unless you bow the knee to Christ and repent, you will die in your sins. Turn to me, the Lord says, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. As Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 45. Friends, today is the day of salvation. Don't make the same choice that Eli's sons continued to do. Confess, agree with God that you are a sinner and that you need God to come and to make you new. Time ran out for Eli's sons. It'll run out for the family line, too. 
So we've seen the wicked sons, the indulgent father. Third is the judgment of the family. As you come to verse 27, there's a mysterious man that comes onto the scene. He has a message now for Eli, but it's not a joyful message for the family. It's the final judgment for his family. There are three aspects to this judgment given to Eli that verbs that are given to us in the text that God reveals, God chose, and God gave. First, the messenger reminds Eli of the past faithfulness of God to him and his family. In verse 27 and 28, it says, Thus says the Lord, that I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh. God showed Eli's family back with Aaron and his sons during the time of Moses. Eli couldn't deny that he occupied this position as priest because God placed this responsibility on his family. Most evidence points out that Eli was a descendant of Ithamar, Aaron's fourth son, and God made himself known to Aaron. And listen, folks, when God makes himself known, he makes his will known. And God's self-revelation to Eli's ancestor, Aaron, and his brother Moses began the great act of redemption, which the Lord liberated the Israelites to become a holy nation to the Lord and then freed the house of Aaron to become priests for the Lord. So that was the first aspect that he's reminding him. He revealed this to him. Second, God chose. Verse 28, did I, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. God's gracious work of choosing is an important theme that we see throughout the scriptures. Israel was chosen by God. Later in this book, we will learn about God's choosing of a king for his people. And God's choice is a reason for great humility and praise. And listen, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God chose you. Amen? You're saved because of God's work in your life. God is the chooser. He chose Aaron out of the tribes to be his priest, to go to the altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before the Lord. And it wasn't just a, a linen ephod worn by the ordinary priest, but this one was exclusive. A special garment had two stones called the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel in which it engraved 12 tribes of Israel. So Aaron would bear the names before the Lord. In other words, he, he represented all of Israel before God. Well, the third act that God was that he gave at the end of verse 28. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. This responsibility that Aaron had was enormous. But God was the one who supplied and Eli and his sons were inheritors of this immensely important rule. And God is informing Eli again of how important this was and how tragically he did in fulfilling what was necessary. After moving from why the judgment is coming, he moves to the what. What did Eli's house do? Well, verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Another rhetorical question introduces this section. They, they scorned the sacrifices. 
This literally means that they kicked the sacrifices. They kicked God in his face. They should have been removed from the priesthood long ago. Verse 30, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This therefore at the beginning of verse 30 has an ominous ring. God had promised that Aaron's family would hold this place and serve, but, would it, but as we've seen, God will then make a decision about Eli. Eli and his sons had forfeited this promise. The promise had not been revoked or nullified. The priesthood would continue in the hands of the descendants of Aaron, but the family of Eli would be removed. Why? Why was this happening? He says, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, or a better translation, they will be disdained. The truth of God's sovereignty in revealing himself and choosing and giving does not nullify but intensifies the demand for holiness in his creation. God will not honor those that do not glorify him. This is truth. It's a fixed principle for God's kingdom. The world will honor those that serve its cause. The Lord promises to honor those who treasure his glory. History will bear this out. Those who despise the Lord may rise to great power and fame, but the day will come of God's retribution for every tyrant and corrupt politician and cheating executive. There will be a day of reckoning. And we read of Eli's here in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. The Hebrew is strong in this verse 31. It literally reads, I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house. Eli's house will be decimated. And that phrase, there will be no old man in your house. In verse 34, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and shall be the sign to you, both of them shall die in the same day. And we will read about that in chapter four. God will not honor those who will not honor and glorify him. And neither should we. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Can you imagine Eli receiving this word? His line will forever be wiped away. His two sons will die. 
and they'll die on the same day. Can you put your sh yourself in his shoes for a moment? His two sons will not experience what it's like to grow old. They will see no opportunity to become grandparents themselves. They won't see gray hair form on their head and wrinkles appear. This too is a warning for us. God is not mocked. We will reap what we sow. Puritan preacher William Blake, he writes, O sin, what a brood of sorrows dost thou bring forth. O young man who walkest in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes, what a myriad of distresses dost thou prepare for those whom thou art most bound to care for though and to bless. Oh, the minister of the gospel who allows thyself to tamper with the cravings of the flesh till thou hast brought ruin on him, himself and disgrace on his family and confusion on the church. What infatuation was it to admit thy worst foe to the sanctuary of thy bosom and allow to establish himself in the citadel till thou couldst not get quit of him so that thou art now helpless in his hands with nothing but sadness for thy present inheritance and for the future of fearful looking for a judgment and a fiery indignation. Eli will realize and he will see firsthand the judgment come upon himself and his family. The passage is not done though in verse 35. The messenger says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he, will, he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priests' place that I may eat a morsel of bread. If you remember back in Hannah's song in chapter two, it's becoming realized now in Eli's house. The bullies become beggars. The rich will beg for food. You may think that the story's over, but it's not. Because we have verse 35 directing us to more. And that leads me to my last point this morning, the rise of Samuel. You know, the people I can imagine in, at Shiloh might have been consumed with the sins of Eli and his house. And all along, through that, they might not have noticed this boy following Eli around. This little man, Samuel. He's right there, right in the midst of all this foolishness in Eli's house. And as I said earlier, hopefully you picked it up in your reading this week in 1 Samuel in chapter 1 and 2, but there are glimmers of hope littered throughout God's word. There are rays of hope here whispering to us, don't, don't lose hope in God. He's not done yet. Keep following him. Keep faithful. Look at Samuel. We skipped over it earlier, but look at verse 18. 
Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe, take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. So we hear of Hannah again coming to Shiloh, making robes for her son year in, year out, just making it a little bigger every year. You know, he's getting bigger. The joy that I'm sure would fill her to see the growth of her, her son growing not only taller, but in his understanding of the God that he will serve. And then in verse 21, indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And what we learn from that verse is the barrenness that we saw in chapter one was not God's displeasure with her. He always had a plan. I mean, God is gracious, isn't he? That's the God we serve. She sacrificed for God, and what does he do? He gives more. God gave Hannah far more than she gave to him. Isn't this your experience, Christian? Haven't you experienced this in your life? This is our God. He asks for so little, and yet he's ready to give us so much more. And here's Samuel. Verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Samuel's coming. God's preparing him to serve. You know, connection to verse 35, and I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Now sure, Samuel would be a faithful priest, but there would be yet a more faithful priest. There would be another child that we read about in the New Testament who also comes with his parents to the temple. You read about it in Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus would become the great high priest, the faithful priest. He would make intercession for his people. He is the one that the author is pointing to. How will Jesus do this? He will become the final sacrifice for us on the cross. He would take our condemnation. He too would be cut down in his prime, but he gave his life for his people. He would do all according to the heart and mind of God. He would be our perfect priest. I come back to my opening question this morning to you. Does God accept you?
And we all would answer, no. No, he doesn't. Because in and of ourselves, we're not okay. You know, the reading of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is to remind us that we're not okay. We need a sacrifice. We need a rescue. It doesn't matter how well we can accept ourselves. God cannot accept us. There's no hope in ourselves. We don't just sin a little, no, we're consumed with sin. We need a rescue. We need Christ. It's only through Jesus Christ that we're now made acceptable to God. Only through Christ. That's the only way. So I encourage you, friends, this morning, if you haven't already, believe on Christ. Trust him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your people that you've brought here to this place. I thank you for the many warnings in this passage this morning that we covered. How my heart has been stirred this week to, to hate my sin as much as you hate it. And we see throughout your word, God, that you are holy. And you call us to be holy, to live holy lives. God, I ask that you will help us as your children to keep a short account with you. We recognize that we will still sin, but Father, may we be quick to repent and to turn away from our sin, to confess it, to forsake it. May we seek to live holy lives. We seek to live lives of humility and praise of you and what you've done for us. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning that, that are not trusting you for salvation, but something else or someone else. They have not turned from their sins, but embrace them. God, I ask that you would save them. That you would bring conviction to their hearts and their minds. That you would bring faith. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it teaches us and leads us and guides us. Help us to be faithful to you this week. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.